The Crime Tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others. Listener discretion is advised. In August 2020, the Australian Federal Police announced the launch of the National DNA Program for Unidentified and Missing Persons, the first of its kind in our country. This program, which is expected to run for two and a half years, has been granted $3.5 million of funding out of the proceeds of Crimes Trust and will utilise modern forensic techniques such as advanced DNA profiling in an attempt to identify the estimated 500 sets of remains that currently sit unidentified in morgues all around Australia. The hope is that these remains will also match with some of the thousands of missing people that remain on file. But sadly, the chances are that the majority of these unidentified remains belong to people that have never been reported as missing, making it so much harder to give these people back their name. In 1991, when the body of a young woman was found discarded in a light industrial area south of Sydney, detectives thought she would be identified quickly. It was Christmas, and if someone's loved one was missing, This was definitely the time of year where it most likely wouldn't go unnoticed. You are listening to The Crime Tree. I'm your host Jasmine and this is the story of Vivienne Ruiz. At around 7am on Saturday the 28th of December in 1991, a cyclist on his daily route noticed something unusual, something that had not been there the day prior. As he rounded the corner exiting Mount Olympus Boulevard, turning right onto Guess Avenue in the Sydney suburb of Arncliffe, he spotted something wrapped in black and orange garbage bags in the unkept knee-high grass and weeds off the side of the road just before the entrance of the Guess Avenue underpass. Curious, he turned his bike around and went back for a closer look. Nearing the object, he noticed a foul odour and decided it best to ride straight to the nearest police station. Detectives Janine Parlett and Michael Platecki from the New South Wales Police were among the first responders on the scene, joined not long afterwards by Sydney's Department of Forensics Chief Forensic Pathologist, Dr Johan Dufleux. After the scene was secured, photographed and documented, Detectives Parlett and Platecki and Forensic Pathologist Dr Johan were able to get their first clear look of what was inside the garbage bags. And to their horror, they discovered it was the decomposing body of a young woman, lying on her back, her legs bent at the knees, her feet tucked up under her buttocks. She was wearing a white sleeveless halter-neck bodysuit underneath a pair of short black-and-white checkered shorts and had light pink fleecy socks on her feet. Her right hand was resting on her bloated abdomen and she wore a petite gold band on her ring finger. Her left arm was at her side, a black leather Seiko watch securely fastened around her wrist. At first glance, robbery and sexual assault did not appear to be motives, but it was clear that this young woman had met a violent end. Her head was tilted slightly backward, revealing a deep ligature mark around her neck. Her short black hair was matted with blood which had also run down her face and arms and covered the front of her white bodysuit. Her mouth was open and it appeared that something was stuffed into her throat. 
Besides the ring and what she was wearing, there were no other personal items or ID found on or near her body. And as she was removed to be taken to the coroner's office, detectives Janine Parlett and Michael Platecki conducted grid searches up and down Guess Avenue and in the adjoining streets looking for anything that may belong to her. Unfortunately, these searches yielded nothing. During his examination of the body, Chief Forensic Pathologist Dr. Johan determined her to be approximately 18 to 25 years of age, weighing 62 kilograms and was 161 centimetres or 5 feet 1 inch tall. She appeared to have been fit and healthy with no needle track marks, no tattoos and no drugs or alcohol were found in her system. She had suffered a severe blow to the back of the head, then was subjected to ligature strangulation before a large amount of newspaper had been stuffed down her throat. Due to the lack of defensive wounds, Dr. Johan theorised that this young woman had been attacked from behind, the blow to the head hard enough to render her unconscious. She was then strangled from behind with a thin cord or rope until she was dead. The newspaper was then forcibly pushed into her mouth and down her throat, Dr. Johan explaining that if the neck compression had not killed her, then the obstruction of her airways would have. Whoever attacked this young woman wanted to ensure she would not survive. The level of decomposition and insect activity suggested her death to have occurred between three to five days earlier, putting her death between December the 23rd and December the 25th, Christmas Day. Dr. Johan also noticed the fingers on her right hand had started to dry out and mummify indicating that she had perhaps been stored uncovered in an area that was warm and dry before being disposed of along Guess Avenue. After running her prints through the system and a search of missing persons reports failed to identify her, Detectives Partland and Platecki reached out to the media. Surely, they assumed, someone would have missed her over the Christmas break, but despite numerous appeals, no one came forward. After completing his examination, Dr. Johan sent her clothing and the newspaper removed from her throat off for forensic analysis. The first step was to look for any fingerprints on the newspaper, their thought being that if they could link someone to the newspaper, then they may be able to identify their victim. And there was only one man they had in mind for this job, Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Fay, a 30-year veteran of New South Wales Police's latent fingerprint unit. Using gloved hands, he carefully unfolded the paper, which he found to be two full sheets of the Sydney Morning Herald, dated Tuesday the 10th of December, and right in the centre were three distinct fingerprints, in what looked to be blood. These prints were carefully photographed numerous times and from many different angles. Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Fay then attempted to enhance the prints using ninhydrin. Ninhydrin is a chemical powder that is mixed with ethanol or acetone before being sprayed onto a print. The ninhydrin reacts to the amino acids in fingerprints, turning them deep purple in colour, often also revealing ridges previously invisible to the naked eye. Detective Fay then ran these prints through the system, but just as with the prints of their victim, they came up with nothing. Meanwhile, the victim's clothes were sent to forensic biologist Michelle Franco, who found traces of sand and numerous hairs stuck to the blood that covered her bodysuit. Arncliffe, where her body was found, is a beachside area, which could easily explain the sand. 
but the hairs found are what intrigued Michelle Franco. Under a high-intensity microscope, she found that the internal structure of these hairs were different to that of humans and determined that they belonged to an animal. So she sent them to animal hair expert Hans Brunner for further analysis and he quickly identified them as dog hairs. And based on his expertise and knowledge, he determined that they most likely came from a German shepherd. As the new year began, detectives ramped up their efforts in identifying the young woman who had simply become known as Sydney's Jane Doe. A policewoman, roughly the same height and weight as the victim, was dressed in an outfit that matched the clothing she was found in. The officer then walked along the nearby beaches and foreshore hoping to jog someone's memory. When this failed, detectives Parlette and Platecki used the clothes to dress up a store mannequin, which they placed in various locations such as the train station, local park and shopping mall, but still no one recognised her. Detective Sergeant Janine Parlett then decided to try and recreate this girl's face. Using photos taken from the morgue and uploaded into a computer program, the wounds, blood and decomposition was removed from her face. Detective Parlett and her team then had to guess what her eyes would look like open, her skin tone and her hairstyle. And when finished, they had what became known as the eight faces of Jane. Detectives Partlet and Platecki then began a massive nationwide campaign. The eight faces of Jane were printed in newspapers and shown on news broadcasts all across Australia, and a command centre was set up to look through all female missing persons reports one by one. By the end of January, one month after being found, she unfortunately was still only known as Jane Doe. But thanks to the efforts of Detective Sergeant Janine Parlett, Detective Senior Sergeant Stephen Horn, Detective Michael Potecki, and to the many volunteers who helped at the command centre, three young women who had been reported as missing were located and made contact with their family. Then Australia's long-running weekly women's magazine New Idea published a full-spread article along with a coloured photo of the facial reconstruction superimposed onto a photo of the police officer wearing Jane Doe's matching outfit. And finally, detectives got their first promising lead when a phone call came in to Detective Senior Sergeant Stephen Horn. The caller was a woman who said that their Jane Doe looked like a young woman named Vivian, who was an exotic dancer in a club in Sydney's red light district, most commonly known as King's Cross. 22-year-old Vivian Linda Ruiz migrated to Australia from Spain with her parents in 1982 at the age of 13. But five years later, her father deserted them. Then a year later, Vivian's mother moved back to Spain to remarry. Vivian wanted to go with her, but her mother wouldn't allow her to. And by the age of 19, Vivian was abandoned by both her mother and father in a country that she was still growing accustomed to. For the next few years, Vivian did her best to support herself before deciding in early 1991 to start dancing at some of the many strip clubs throughout King's Cross, becoming a regular and popular performer at Porky's Nightspot. Porky's, which closed its doors in 2018 after 30 years of business, were only too happy to help investigators with their inquiries. Vivian, they said, worked under the name Linda and was one of their most requested dancers. 
but as far as they knew, she had gone on an overseas holiday with her boyfriend Richard. They also provided detectives with Vivian's last known address, which was a rented apartment just a short walking distance from the club. Still needing to make a positive ID, Detectives Partlett and Platecki tracked down the real estate agent who was responsible for managing the apartment Vivian was renting. Providing detectives with the lease agreement signed on the 16th of July 1991 by both Vivian and her boyfriend Richard White, she also informed them that the couple had since moved out, Richard having handed back the keys and breaking lease just days after Christmas. Now that they had all the details they needed for Vivian Ruiz, detectives were quickly able to locate her dental records, and two months after her body was found, Sydney's Jane Doe was positively identified. But detectives decided not to release this information to the public because they still needed to track down Vivian's boyfriend, 24-year-old Richard George Hugh White. Speaking once again to the managers and workers of Porky's, Detectives Partlett and Platecki learned that Richard White was a regular fixture to the King's Cross area, but hadn't been seen since around New Year's. Vivian's friends telling them that the two had booked tickets months earlier for a trip around Europe, and they were supposed to have flown out of Australia in early January. This explained why no one reported Vivian as missing and why she wasn't initially connected to the pictures of Jane Doe. To all who knew her, Vivian was simply on vacation. Contacting local travel agents in the Potts Point area, detectives found the records for Vivian and Richard's holiday. Two tickets from Sydney to London were purchased on the 19th of October for a total cost of $2,010, paid for by Vivian but both of these tickets were cancelled by Richard on December the 27th, with Richard asking for the refund cheque to be sent to his parents' place in Bexley, just two kilometres southwest of where Vivian's body was found. Richard's bank records from the same day also showed that he deposited $4,000 of cash into his account, his balance prior to this being minus $3.42. Vivian's friends told investigators that she kept her money in a shoebox in her bedroom and had confided in some of them that she had saved just over $4,000 for her holiday. Checking Richard's details, they found that he had a history of assault and that during a DUI arrest in 1989, his prints had been taken and were on file. The prints taken from the newspaper were once again ran through the system. But again, no match was found. Detectives then pulled Richard's fingerprint card and sent it to Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Fay at the Latent Fingerprint Unit for a physical comparison. And what Carl Fay found was that these prints were in fact the prints of Richard White. The prints were not from the fingerprint ridges, but from the valleys instead. And after a negative image of the prints were made, they were a perfect match for the middle three fingers of Richard's right hand but detectives were still yet to locate Richard and under the guise of a traffic violation sent a local cop to his parents' house in the hopes of finding him. To their disappointment, they were told that just after Christmas, Richard had sold his vehicle, an old white van, and then on the 2nd of January had flown to London via the Philippines. 24-year-old Richard White had fled the country and potentially could be anywhere but detectives were easily able to locate his van 
and by a stroke of luck the new owner had not cleaned or washed it since obtaining ownership. During a forensic examination, several stains were found on the old floor liner in the back and presumptive tests reacted positively to blood. Smudges of blood were also found on the vehicle's gearbox cover, and throughout the entire van were what appeared to be dog hairs. Animal hair expert Hans Brunner concluding that they too were most likely from a German shepherd. Checking the phone records for Richard's parents' home, detectives found a number of reverse charge calls from England, with one of these calls coming from a Newcastle landline belonging to Richard's uncle. The Australian High Commissioner in London then requested assistance from Scotland Yard in helping to trace and locate Richard, and Detective Sergeant Les Bowen from Scotland Yard's International and Organised Crime Branch was assigned to the case. Still not wanting to alert Richard of the investigation, Detective Bowen made some discreet inquiries within Newcastle's bar and club scene. Armed with just a photo, he approached barmaids and dancers, asking if anyone recognised him. And one did, announcing to Detective Bowen that the man was a regular patron and that he was also Australian. Knowing they were on the right track, on the 29th of April 1992, Detective Sergeant Les Bowen and his team surrounded the Newcastle-upon-Tyne residence of Richard's aunt and uncle, before placing a phone call to the home's landline. As soon as the man who answered the phone announced in an Australian accent that his name was Richard, Detective Bowen burst through the front door. Richard White was standing next to the fireplace with the phone still in his hand, when Detective Bowen announced that he had a warrant for his arrest on behalf of the Australian government for the murder of Vivienne Ruiz. As soon as word was received that Richard was in custody, a coordinated search warrant was carried out at Richard's parents' home. While nothing was found inside the house, they discovered that as the house was built on a slope, a storage and workroom had been built in underneath it that was accessible only from the outside. And under here, they found boxes full of Vivienne's belongings and in the far corner was an area where sand covered the floor, sand that was consistent with the sand found on Vivian's bodysuit. While collecting this evidence from the storage room, the family's dog, an elderly German shepherd, wandered in and patiently sat still while detectives collected hair from it to be compared with the hairs also found on Vivian's clothing and body. Almost nine months after the murder of Vivian Roez, Richard White was extradited back to Australia to stand trial, and detectives finally announced to the public the identity of their Jane Doe. At his trial, prosecutors theorised that on or around December 24th, Richard attacked Vivian, strangled her, then shoved the newspaper down her throat to ensure she was dead. He then put her body under his parents' house before joining them for Christmas dinner. On the 27th, the first business trading day after Christmas, he cancelled their tickets to Europe before depositing Vivian's savings into his own bank account. The following day, in the early morning hours, he wrapped her body in garbage bags, put her in the back of his van and dumped her along Guess Avenue, less than two kilometres from his family home, where she was found just hours later by the cyclist on his morning ride. The following day, Richard then went to a different travel agent where he purchased a one-way ticket to the UK, flying out of the country just days later after emptying the apartment that he and Vivian shared and selling his van. 
Richard's defence team, however, did not dispute that it was his fingerprints on the newspaper, but they did dispute how the prints got there. They pointed out that the tests used on the prints to determine the presence of blood actually test positive to anything protein-based and therefore could have come from something else. Their suggestion was that Richard had been reading the newspaper while eating a meat pie with tomato sauce. The protein from the meat in the pie reacting with the swab tests and that it was the tomato sauce that gave it the appearance of blood. And as for how the newspaper then ended up down her throat, well someone else must have killed her. When this suggestion was put to fingerprint examiner Carl Fay under cross-examination, he was quick to point out that if that was what had happened, then Richard would have been reading the newspaper upside down. Besides, he told the court, the only way a tonal reverse of the prints was possible was if the killer, with blood all over his hands, had grabbed the newspaper and scrunched it up. These actions would remove all the blood from the ridges of his prints then the amount of force used to push the newspaper as far down her throat as possible is what caused the blood still trapped in the fingerprint valleys to be transferred. The court also heard that when Australian detectives arrived in London to extradite Richard, a search of his items revealed several handwritten notes. One of these notes was a list titled, Do This Now. And point one at the top of this list was, Convince yourself of your innocence. On another piece of paper, he had written questions and answers for a mock police interview, with questions such as, why did you hit her? On Friday the 12th of July in 1996, Richard George Hugh White was found guilty of the murder of Vivian and sentenced to 15 years with a minimum of 10. Richard has since been released and his current location is unknown. Five months after her death, 22-year-old Vivian Linda Ruiz was cremated and her ashes buried in a plot at Rookwood General Cemetery in Sydney, New South Wales. Sadly, cemetery staff outnumbered the mourners. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the crime tree. All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the crime tree.